Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Listeners, and welcome to Season 7, Episode 22 of Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and tonight's episode has some truly chilling stories for you. We'll begin with Still Awake by the Vesper's Bell, a particularly claustrophobic tale about a scientific experiment that stretches human perception beyond the breaking point. Also, as a special treat, we have two... That's right, folks. Two guests jumping in for this story. Please join me in welcoming Olivia Steele and Paul J. McSorley. If you didn't already know, 
Paul hosts his own horror podcast, Fear from the Heartland, which you can find on the podcast platform of your choice. Following that, we'll finish up our evening with The Obituary of Bluto Hansen by Samuel Geist. In this tale, we're placed on the knee of an aging Oregon man who relates to us a story that his grandfather told him many years ago. It's a tale that, unfortunately, many small towns are familiar with. Intolerance. Murder. Revenge. Who's to say which urban legends are mere yarns to keep kids entertained, and which ones actually happened? Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast, bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. Specifically, please note that one of tonight's stories, The Obituary of Bluto Hansen, includes portrayals of violence against members of the gay community. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today and get instant access. Did I mention they're ad-free? Thank you for your support. And now, from the Vesper's Bell, I give you Still Awake. Why the hell do the overseers keep sticking us with all this creepy pasta bullshit? Security Officer Joseph Gromwell grumbled as he pulled the sleek, full-face respirator mask over his head. Most of the other big sites think they're too good for run-of-the-mill murder monsters, and frankly, I think our director's got a bit of a soft spot for them. Researcher Luna Valdez said as she rifled through the rack of masks for one that would fit her. Son of a... I swear, if I end up a gas-addicted, sleep-deprived zombie because they don't stock small enough masks, I will sue. They keep the small masks on the bottom so that small people can reach them, Joseph said, pointing to the lowest rung on the rack. It's called being considerate. With a sarcastic laugh, Luna grabbed a mask from the bottom of the rack and strapped it on. All right, I've got a good seal, she announced. Exterior door sealed as well, and according to the computer, there's no trace of insomnium gas in the observation chamber, Joseph reported. The containment chamber is locked and airtight. When you're ready, Luna. She nodded, placing her thumb on the large green button beside her. With a firm press, a deep horn sounded, and the door to the observation chamber slid open. Joseph was the first through it, his rifle clutched firmly in both hands. He walked the full perimeter of the room, checking the access control vestibule to the containment chamber and the window into it for any signs of having been compromised. Room's clear. I've checked in the closet and under the bed. There are no monsters in here, he announced. There is, however, an old can of orange soda sitting on the console. 
which means the last person in here was both violating protocol and couldn't give two shits to clean up the evidence. Sounds like Helvig to me. Luna said as she took her thumb off the button and stepped into the observation room, the door automatically shutting and locking behind her. She glanced uneasily at the window to the containment chamber, her view obstructed by a reinforced steel blast shield on the opposite side. So, the woke Russian's just on the other side, huh? Joseph asked. I don't call him that. He's not a critic of Putin. Luna chastised him, taking her seat at the control console and checking that everything was in working order before she began. His official nickname is still the Soviet Somnophobe. But he hasn't had a wink of sleep in over 75 years? Gromwell asked incredulously. And the gas that keeps him awake isn't the anomaly. Nope. The gas is a perfectly explicable molecular compound that catalyzes and sustains a complex neurochemical feedback loop that replaces and eliminates the need for sleep. She replied. Cognitively, at least, if not psychologically. The anomaly is the psychosomatic changes that happen when you stop sleeping. But the report says that the original test subjects first manifested anomalous abilities after only nine days on the gas. People have gone more than nine days without sleep and not turned into that, he said, gesturing to what lay on the other side of the window. They microsleep. The insomnium gas eliminates the need for even that, and a few seconds of sleep is all it takes to keep this anomaly in check. Luna replied. There are no cameras in the containment cell. He breaks them, or covers them, so there's no sense in repairing them. Gas and oxygen consumption indicates that he's alive and well in there, however. I'm not getting any sound, but I'm told that's normal. As far as I know, he hasn't had any contact since his last evaluation. Before I lower the steel barricade, I'm going to announce our presence to him. I have no idea how he'll react, so be ready for anything. Joseph nodded curtly, taking his place at her side and with his rifle aimed at the window. Luna pressed the button for the intercom, leaning into the microphone to avoid speaking too loudly. Attention, Shelley Class Paranormal Humanoid Number K89 Sigma. My name is Dr. Luna Valdez, and I am a parapsychologist here at the Dreadfort facility. In accordance with our standard operating procedures, I am required to conduct an oral and visual examination to confirm that your overall status remains unchanged. I will be lowering the partition to allow visual contact. Your participation in this examination is not voluntary. Failure to participate will result in the immediate cessation of your supply of the insomnium gas. Any attempt at breaching containment or causing me or my colleague physical harm will result in the immediate cessation of your supply of insomnium gas as well as your possible termination. Please acknowledge that you understand this. She immediately took her finger off the button and waited for several long seconds before receiving a single word in response. Duh. Are we sure he speaks English? Joseph asked softly. That's what it says in the file. Luna shrugged. All right, I'm dropping the barrier. Brace yourself. As the steel partition lowered, the inside of the containment chamber was slowly revealed to them. Every possible surface was covered in caking layers of dried, browned blood, flaking away like old paint. 
The light fixtures built into the ceiling were not completely covered, however, letting through just enough light to see the mutilated figure sitting cross-legged upon the cot in the center of the room. Though he was emaciated to the point of practically being a skeleton, his skin was thick with layers of shiny, leathery scar tissue, stained a yellowish-brown like aged parchment. Innumerable streaks of fresh scars ran all across his body, each having been carved by the points of sharpened bones that protruded from his fingertips. A deep and jagged incision ran the full length of his abdomen, revealing his gangrenous intestines slowly spasming away. His lips had been cut off, and his mouth cut open into an unhealed Glasgow smile, ensuring that every one of his rotting yellow teeth were visible, extruding out of bleeding and receding gums. His lidless eyes were jaundiced and bloodshot, and his scalp and upper cranium had been cut away entirely, exposing his diseased brain directly to the insomnium gas. His brain was the same nauseating yellow as his eyes and teeth, with tendrils of coagulated blood crawling along every crevice and wrinkle. The Soviet's jaw hung slack as he breathed in deeply yet rapidly through his mouth, his sunken chest and exposed ribcage rising and falling as he religiously inhaled as much air as possible. The air itself was a repulsive smog of brown haze and suspended flecks of dried blood. The concentrations of insomnium gas well past what should have been instantly fatal levels. While the room's gas intake vent had been intentionally left unimpeded, the outtake vent was so clogged and the ventilation so poor that the room had effectively become a hyperbaric chamber. While the Soviet himself sat perfectly still, his scarred flesh, decaying organs, and congested brain each writhed with subtle paroxysms, none of them in sync with each other, as if they were all adjacent but separate systems rather than parts of a single integrated being. As Luna gazed at the creature on the cot in revulsion, and he gazed back at her with unblinking eyes, there was something else that unsettled her that she failed to immediately recognize. Shit, lights are too dim in there, Joseph cursed. He can see us. That's... that's fine. Luna claimed as she swallowed nervously, fumbling for her pen as she prepared to take notes. The use of the one-way mirror is discretionary. There's no rule saying he can't see us. Clearing her throat, she once again reached for the microphone. Thank you for your compliance, K-89. How are you feeling today? Irritated, the Soviet replied, leaning forward slightly as brown, brackish blood pooled along his gum line. I apologize for the disturbance. I'll try to be quick, she assured him. Are you aware of any change in your condition that you'd like us to be aware of? Yet. Kindly provide all answers in English, thank you. What about your cell? Any maintenance issues that the monitoring system may not have picked up? Uh, trouble with the water or anything like that? I wouldn't know. He replied flatly, the scar tissue around his eyes spasming as if they were desperately trying to blink. You don't use the water? Luna asked incredulously. I need only the gas. 
I want only the gas. I ask only for the gas. He claimed, as what was left of his nose curled up into a snarl. That's all you want? Just to breathe? Literally nothing else? Luna asked. You've been in that cell, or one like it, for 75 years with nothing but that damn gas. I understand that you can't survive without it, but why is it so all-consuming to you? I exist. That is enough. Is that really so incomprehensible to you? The Soviet sneered. You sleepers, even when you're awake, you do everything you can to ignore it. You work, you play, you daydream, you numb yourself with narcotics, anything but simply experience consciousness, pure and raw, and be thankful for it. For me, distractions from consciousness are something to be minimized, not sought after. All right, I'll play along. If you've actually achieved some kind of Buddha-like level of enlightenment, then why all the self-harm? She asked pointing with her pen at his hideously scarred flesh. Pain is not a distraction, quite the opposite. Pain summons, demands full attention to it, to the moment. It expands fully into one's perception and pushes out all idle diversions. You speak of Buddha? The first noble truth of the Buddha is that life is suffering, a tenet which is so often misconstrued by the unenlightened. It is not a condemnation of existence, but rather the acknowledgement that existence is conscious experience, and that you are never more conscious than when you are suffering. Pain means you are alive, that you are awake. I must remain awake. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So, finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together. But you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them. Because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com the place to find a pet-friendly place. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. 
Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. That's some pretty serious cherry picking there, considering that the entire point of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is to end the cycle of suffering. Luna countered. Your self-harm is quite extensive, to put it mildly. Doesn't the risk it poses to your existence outweigh the benefits? The Soviet shook his head slowly, his yellow brain jiggling like jelly in his open skull. When you are as awake as I am, you know how to fortify your own flesh and exactly how much it can take, he claimed. Fair enough. So... Overall, you're satisfied with your containment conditions, desire no changes or supplemental items, and have no concern about your own physical or mental health? She asked. Da, he replied. Good. Good. Luna muttered, checking off the last few boxes on her sheet. Technically, she had all the information she required and had even gone beyond it when she indulged him in philosophical discussion. She could stop if she wanted to, but the length and depth of her discussion with him were, to a point, at her own discretion, and there was something that she wanted to know. According to your file, when one of the original researchers demanded to know what you were, you claimed to be a form of primal madness that lies dormant in the basal ganglia, and that's kept in check by sleep. She said. Do you still claim that? That you weren't created by the gas, but awakened by it? The Soviet chuckled slightly, and for the first time, there was no hostility in his smile. (laughs) I believe what I said more accurately translates to deepest animal mind. Not basal ganglia, but yes, everything that sleeps, sleeps to silence us. It unsettles you, doesn't it? That deep within you, there is something like me, always has been, always will be, and that the only difference between you and me is about nine days without a wink of sleep? He unfolded his legs and rose to his feet a scarred and asymmetrical scrotum dangling between his legs as he stood. God damn it. Every naked humanoid I get assigned to is always a deformed old man, Gromwell muttered in disdain. Not the time, Joseph. Luna reprimanded him. Just saying that a naked humanoid who also happens to be a reasonably attractive woman would be a nice change of pace, he rambled. I can handle a succubus, and if we ever try to contact those star siren things, I volunteer. Noted, Luna said with a roll of her eyes. She turned her attention back to the Soviet, who was now standing right in front of the glass. That is all that separates us, figuratively and literally, he said, tapping on the glass with the exposed bone of his finger. Step away from the glass. Luna ordered. You feel her when you look at me, don't you? The primal homunculus deep within you that values existence above all else that you sedate, silence, and murder every time you go to sleep. He hissed vehemently, scratching his claw along the glass to make a high-pitched screeching. 
Step away from the glass or I will terminate your gas supply. Luna threatened. No, you won't. You won't risk losing me or provoking me. He said confidently, running all five fingers of his right hand along the glass now. You want to know what I am, doctor? Come closer. Press your right ear against the glass, and I will whisper truths to you that even I dare not speak of too loudly. Glowering at him and hesitating for only a moment, Luna pressed the button to cut off the gas supply to the containment chamber. His neck twisted around at an inhuman angle so that he could look at the vent behind him, and he instantly realized that he had wrongly called her bluff. Return to your bed and I'll turn the gas back on, she instructed. Turn the gas back on now, he demanded, his teeth clenched so tightly that they cracked and his gums oozed abscessed fluid. This is not a negotiation, she said leaning back and folding her arms across her chest. He responded by pounding the glass with his fist and screaming a string of Russian obscenities at her. Kindly phrase all insults and threats directed at me in either English or Spanish, thank you. Turn my fucking gas back on this instant to you, or I'll pull your intestines out through your sinuses and hang you with them. He screamed. Uh, Luna, are you sure it's a good idea to agitate this guy? Joseph asked quietly. It wasn't the outrage in the Soviet's voice that worried him, but rather the obvious desperation he could see in his eyes. If he wants to play stupid games, he's going to win stupid prizes, she replied. If he wants the gas back on, all he has to do is go back to his bed. That's a perfectly reasonable demand. The Soviet glared at her with intense hatred, grinding his teeth in rage but she remained dogged in her decision. When he was forced to accept that he could not intimidate her from within his cell, he lowered his head in humiliation and took a few shuffling steps back towards his bed. When he was halfway there, he paused, as though he was considering something. He took one final look back towards the window, and without any warning at all, he rammed it with a shocking burst of speed. The force of the impact was not enough to break the glass on its own, but it was enough to crack the hermetic seal. And then the barometric pressure difference between the two rooms was enough to shatter the window as a thick, soupy fog rushed into the observation room like a hurricane. Luna immediately dropped behind her console to shield herself from the storm of shards, while Gromwell emptied his magazine into the cloud in the hopes of gunning down the Soviet. The steel barrier had automatically dropped down the second the glass had been breached, so it was possible that the Soviet was either still in there or had been crushed by it. When the gunfire fell silent, Luna peeked out over her console, but her mask had already become so covered in condensation that she could barely see. She rushed to wipe it clean, and as soon as she did, she saw the Soviet charging at her. His body was impaled with hundreds of glass shards, each hemorrhaging out viscous blood and pus, but it still wasn't enough to quell his need for the gas. I must remain awake! He screamed, eyes wild and bulging as he lifted her up and slammed her back down against the console, not intending to let her back up until his demand was met. 
He was instead knocked back against the wall as Joseph tackled him, driving his combat knife into his abdomen as he did so. Pinning him against the wall by his throat with the intent to strangle him, Joseph retracted his knife and plunged it into the Soviet's chest in the hopes of dealing a fatal blow. When it didn't work, he just stabbed him again, and then again, all while a deranged smile spread across the Soviet's face. Keep cutting, he choked out. Enraged and disgusted, Joseph raised his knife to skewer the Soviet's exposed brain, but this time he managed another burst of strength and kicked Gromwell across the room. The gas! The gas! The Soviet screamed as he assaulted Luna once again, grabbing her by her lab coat and pounding her against the console. I can't see! She protested, failing in her Sisyphean struggle to keep her mask clean in the heavily polluted air. Allow me then! The Soviet said with a sadistic sneer as he grabbed the side of her mask. Before he could pull it off, however, he stumbled backwards as he was caught off guard by a bullet from Gromwell's sidearm. Once he was a bit further from Luna, Joseph quickly fired the last 12 bullets in the magazine at him as well. Frantically wiping her mask clean, Luna turned the gas back on and opened both doors to the containment chamber as well. She ran to Joseph and threw his arm around her, helping him to his feet. The two of them sprinted towards the exit, and as Luna struggled to input the code to open the door, she wiped her mask clean again to see if the Soviet was following them. She saw him on the other side of the observation room, standing in front of the entrance to his containment chamber, savoring the smell of his precious gas. It seemed impossible that he was still standing, given the innumerable puncture wounds he had suffered and the amount of bodily fluids he had lost. And yet, there he stood, still alive, still awake. He returned her gaze, and before shambling back into his containment chamber, he reached down to pick up the old can of orange soda and raised it to her in a toast. You've been listening to Still Awake by The Vesper's Bell. The Vesper's Bell is a creepypasta author who prefers to remain pseudonymous for completely unsuspicious and non-nefarious reasons. After honing a lifelong interest in creative writing through multiple endeavors, most notably the SCP Wiki, the Vesper's Bell has joined the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights writing team for the opportunity to both expand and diversify their body of work, as well as reach new and wider audiences. A longtime fan of creepypasta indie horror, the Vesper's Bell aims to become a sizable and significant contributor to the genre in the coming years. And now, for our last story of the evening, I present The Obituary of Bluto Hansen by Samuel Geist. Here in the northern part of Oregon, we've got a few nasty little stories people pass around. 
Of course, you've got your classics. An escaped mental patient with a knife out on Makeout Point. Bloody Mary waiting for kids to say her name three times, etc. But we have a few that are kept a bit closer to the chest between people. Hell, a few years back, we had a full-on massacre on New Year's morning. The whole trailer park went up, and we lost a few cops to some loser who'd lost his mind. Then we've got Mr. Harley and his creepy, crawly church in the woods. When I was a boy, this was by far the scariest, and I remember waiting up all night sometimes just in case I saw a stray cleaver waving around my house at night. There are a few like that, ghosts and bad memories, but I'd like to separate this special one from the pack. You guys will get a kick out of this one. Even before I was a kid, people have been whispering about Ribbon County's own little boogeyman every Halloween. You go up to any of the kids here, and I'll bet you five bucks that any one of them pipes up with two words. Bluto Hansen. It used to be a harder story to come by. That kind of thing used to make people really nervous whenever you brought it up but it's become almost a meme over the last decade or so. My grandpa couldn't help but gather us little kids around his sofa chair every year for it, feeling the urge to scare the daylights out of us. So, the year is 1976. My grandpa, Gerald O'Bannon, is a newly appointed deputy in Weinwick. We are a shitty town with even shittier people, but much more so than that. This is a good Oregon fall. We're talking scary movies on every TV set and witchy decorations on every door and porch. Back then, it was usually reruns of Vincent Price movies that got people all flustered, but this year, it would be much, much different. My grandpa is standing by the water cooler in the jailhouse, discussing business around town with some other beat cops, probably bake sales and PTA meetings. Just then, though, the department gets a call. The secretary answers, but she's talking to the person on the other line like there's a huge emergency or something. So here she comes, hollering and sweating up a storm, begging the guys to head out to an old car dump on the outskirts of town. Apparently, there'd been an accident, and somebody was busted up really bad. Now, my grandpa didn't know exactly how bad just yet, but when everybody got out there, he'd had half a mind to cry. So all of these blue boys are sitting there gawking at the scene, watching paramedics wrap up this boy. They had no clue who it was, even though his face was right there in the open. Grandpa said that whatever had happened, this guy ended his week being set on fire. He found the fella leaning against the hood of a car, the skin charred and sticking to the rusty old grill. There was still smoke smoldering out from underneath the fella's clothes, his insides still burning. That's how every version of the story starts, with old Bluto having been found like that. 
But most folks who tell the story didn't have my grandpa to give a legitimate recollection, now did they? Bluto was a 17-year-old high school kid. He played shortstop with the Wombats, was a chemistry whiz, and had good nuclear family American parents. The case was juggled around for a while between the boys until, eventually, some poor fella had to talk to folks who knew Bluto. My grandpa was happy that it hadn't been him. He was only five years into the job, and he had yet to see something that gruesome. He said that the image of that kid sitting on the ground like that would still float around his head ever so often, and it messed him up for a while. So, two days pass, and Halloween is just simmering down in the wee hours of the morning. My old pops is still running through parking tickets in the office, stuck being the only one to work that night. Grandpa hadn't had my dad yet, so he usually picked the short straw on working holidays. This would be a little frustrating, especially when he was interrupted by a phone call somewhere around 1 a.m. My grandpa answered in the usual way, or <laughs> at least he tried to. The person on the other end hadn't let him get too far before exploding in tears and screaming for someone to help them. My grandpa said their frantic yelling got under his skin, and he hated the few words he could actually make out from their story, like, there's blood, and, oh god, she's dead. It took a while to pull an address out of them, but Grandpa committed to the call before pulling on his jacket and driving out into the night. That night, three more high school kids lost their lives. Doris Buchanan, 16, was found floating face down in her own swimming pool, missing a few fingers and with signs of serious knife trauma. Alexi Buchanan, her brother, was found with his head underneath the front wheel of his Ford pickup truck. Finally, Robert Lawler, age 17, was found with his own insides shoved in his own mouth, sitting atop the Buchanan house on Leopold Way. Strangely, my grandpa was surprised to see that the Buchanan's little brother, Polly, was completely fine. Well, scared and crying and with newly soaked pants, but mostly okay. The entire scene was almost incredible to my pops. He said that it was like a real horror movie just shooting out in the open. He half expected the kids to sit up at some point and laugh off their macabre little prank, but they didn't. Grandpa called most of the department from their warm beds, and the entire department stood around staring at the mess. Of course, all of the boys left Pop to talk to the incredibly fanatic mother of Doris and Alexi. Grandpa isn't the best at comforting someone now, let alone back then when he was just a young fella. So there she is, just berating my grandpa right there on the sidewalk. Gramps always thought that the mother was a strange bird. He said that she seemed far more upset with him rather than with the unfortunate murder of her children. Sure, he said, there were tears in her eyes, but she wasn't sad 
as much as she was absolutely furious. Nothing proved that to my grandpa more than when he caught Mrs. Buchanan's eyes drift behind his shoulder. She let out an absolutely horrid scream, full of anger and very, very harsh words. Grandpa Gerald turned and followed her index finger to a young face standing in the dark across the street, dressed in blue jeans and a letterman jacket. The boy watching them from just a few yards away was named Howard. Howard belonged to one of only two black families in town limits, having been there for at least four generations or so, as hard as those old-timey bastards tried to chase them away. Mrs. Buchanan was evidently not a fan of Howard being there, even so far away. She explained that if my grandpa didn't swat the kid away, she would do so with her husband's hunting rifle. That's the second time he's been here in a week, deputy. I called you idiots last time he was here, and I didn't see a cop for hours. Maybe you could have done something the other night when he was harassing my daughter at my own damn door. Then she was hollering at Howard. They'll get you, boy. I know how you folks are. I know you did this to my babies. She was just a girl. You just couldn't help yourself, could you, mister? Get away from my fucking house before I paint the asphalt with your brains. I'll see you in goddamn chains, you bastard. My grandpa was likely trying to calm her. However, I always picture him standing there with a finger in each ear to not go deaf from her screaming. Grandpa was watching the neighbor folks turning towards little Howard, and he didn't care much for the sneaky way they were whispering to one another. So, my grandpa hands off the old monster to one of his police buddies before taking a quiet stroll across the street to talk to Howard. Now, Howard, for one reason or another doesn't live in town anymore. He might even have passed, for all I know. So I've never seen him, but my grandpa described him as a tall, slender black guy with good looks. At least, he usually was prettier on the eyes. That morning, though, Howard looked sunken around the eyes. His mouth was draped over his chin like a limp dish rag. Howard didn't look my pops in the eyes when he spoke to him, just stared at the misery across the street like it was a carnival act. That lady doesn't seem to like you much, Mr. Howard. Howard didn't say anything. She said you'd come around the house to talk to her daughter a little while back. Can I ask what it was about? Howard spoke in a guttural whisper like he was holding a frog in his throat. Nothing in particular. Just wanted her to tell the truth. My grandpa raised an eyebrow there and gestured for Howard to kick back on the sidewalk with him. What did she need to be honest about, Howard? Howard still stared past my grandpa and said, Sometimes people get away with really horrible things. They do things to people they don't like because they can because they think they can. All I wanted was for her to tell the police what she'd done. Grandpa was silent, just staring at the side of Howard's head. 
She burned a boy alive. Her and her stupid friends. They didn't like him, or me. They didn't like us doing what we were doing, even though it wasn't wrong. We weren't hurting anybody. We just got along, is all. Howard told my grandpa that Doris Buchanan and her disciples took a gas can, dumped it over Bluto Hansen's head, and set him alight. He was saying that because Bluto and Howard were friends, Doris saw an opportunity to rid her town of a little black spot. Howard said that she'd laughed and laughed while they were throwing Bluto around. She kept barking at her brother to kick him there and knock him to the ground. So my grandpa asked him, Howard, did you kill these kids? He was taking Howard in for a conversation down at the station. Howard didn't say anything. That pretty much settled it for my pops, and he asked Howie to stand up and cuffed him. So there they are, under bright fluorescent lights, two styrofoam cups between them filled with coffee. My grandpa asks Howard to please tell the story as he remembers it, and to be honest. Howard tells my grandpa he won't believe him, and he acknowledges that he might not, but he needs to hear it anyway. And so... Howard and Bluto were fooling around with each other at the scrapyard, as they normally did every week. There isn't really a place to kiss and hold hands around town when you're two fellas, so they wanted to do it where no one would likely pull out a gun or a Bible or something. This time, though, they failed to hear the brakes of someone else's car squeal as they entered the lot. Doris had tagged along with her brother and his friend to shoot at some bottles with Alexei's new hand cannon. Just as they rounded the corner and drove in, they'd noticed Howard's Plymouth parked next to a stack of busted old TV sets. Howard and Bluto were busy, and this was such an odd sight that it pissed the Buchanan clan off royally. No queers in our town! Come here, you fucking cocksucker! They'd wrenched the car doors open and pulled both boys out. After beating the daylights out of Bluto and making Howard watch, Alexei got the bright idea to solve the problem in a more... explosive way. So he siphoned off some gas from Howard's Plymouth and poured a coffee can's worth atop Bluto's head. My grandpa knew this part, though. He asked Howard to skip along to the aftermath. Howard thought this was a bit cold and told my grandpa that he was so sorry that this boy's murder was such an earsore for him. Grandpa seemed to feel a bit bad for the way he'd conducted himself at the time, and I don't blame him. Howard should have punched him, in my personal opinion. So, Howard watches this happen right in front of him. The light, the screaming, the smell... The group doesn't laugh or jeer once the fire starts. They seem to have yet to realize exactly what they were doing. They just stood there. Even Doris covered her ears once Bluto started to scream. 
He said it sounded like a wounded dog would if you cut off its leg and pressed a red-hot iron into the stub. Horrible, vicious moans and groaning. The sounds faded, though, slowly but surely. Every so often, there'd be another moan as the flames lapped around and his clothes crackled and charred. They left Howard there, on the ground. It wasn't as fun as they'd thought. It was too much for them to see what they had done. They didn't say anything as they left. They just packed up in a hurry. Howard lay by the remains, as close as he could while the fire still cooked his lover. He didn't know what to do either. He didn't know if he loved this boy. They hadn't been together that long. But maybe they were close to being in love. Just so close. And now so far. Howard didn't drive to the police office. Instead, he'd sped over to the Buchanan home, barely reaching the doorstep before the tears started again. The windows were shuttered and the house was silent, but Doris came to the door, furious to see Howard again. She told him to leave, and he begged her to come with him to the police to get help, maybe. But Doris was far too scared. She instead pretended not to know why he'd want to do so. She said they were doing what was right, and there was no reason to tell the police anything. And if Howard decided to do so, he'd be facing the Buchanan family in court. Then, she shut the door in his face. Howard drove home. Howard kicked his own door open and fell onto his mother's lap in a heap, crying and smelling like cooked meat. His mother held him for an hour or so, crying with her son as he told her what had happened. He couldn't tell her exactly why the group had done what they did, but just what they had done. He wasn't ready to tell her that bit of news just yet. His mother had put him to bed soon after. His dinner and glass of water were left on his bedside table, and he was left alone in his dark room. As he lay there in the dark, he heard the back door of his house slowly creak open. He didn't know where his mother had gone. He didn't know what she was doing or how she planned to help, but this bleeding-heart teenage romantic didn't care. He wanted consequences, and he stayed up the whole night, picturing Doris Buchanan's face on a missing poster or printed on the back of a milk carton. That night, when he had reluctantly fallen asleep, he opened his eyes in the dark. There was a noise in his room, quiet, but definitely there. It was the sound of shifting weight on the old house's floorboards, like a person trying to stay silent but leaning too hard on the weak wood. Howard slowly turned his head toward the ceiling, thinking that maybe he'd hallucinated it. But when he sat up, pulling the covers from his torso, he looked up. There, in the dark, were two faint red lights. They floated about six feet from the ground, only a few inches away from one another. 
Howard could see the wall and window behind them in the pale moonlight that shone through his window, but they were there just the same. Two eyes, he thought. Two red, glowing eyes staring at him. A beam of light from outside cast against them. Against the wall, just to the left of the eyes, was the shape of a man. He could see the details of curly, mop-headed hair. He could see the broad shoulders slumped over in a hunch. There was something flat and square in the shadow's hand, and when he turned back to the invisible thing with the glowing eyes, he saw what it was holding. An old, beaten cleaver floated just below the waist of the thing. The handle was aged brown wood, the blade was battered and dented, and a cascade of dried brown liquid congealed to its silver face. Howard didn't speak, and even though he wanted to cry, he'd used up all the tears just a few hours earlier. He'd known that shadow, of course, or at least who it had belonged to. And here he was, standing in Howard's bedroom. Not a person anymore, but something else. Something wrong. Howard thought that he had to be dreaming, but no one was as stupid as that. It was here, and he was here too, and now he was seeing something that shouldn't be in a very real way. He stared into the lights, and they stared back. The quiet between them was cold, like a half-formed memory. The eyes seemed to watch him weirdly, like they couldn't quite remember why they were staring at him to begin with. Howard didn't speak, but when he watched the invisible thing lurch toward him with a single footstep, a pathetic whimper bled out from between his lips. The thing stopped, seeming to regard Howard's reaction with confusion. The thing froze, the cleaver twisting around in its unseen fingers. Then, Howard heard it make a noise. It wasn't words, just a fading squeal. It was drawn out, and it grew louder as Howard recognized that this thing, this being that was Bluto, was laughing. It was chuckling at him, though it sometimes seemed more like the aching cries of a baby. The laugh rode up into Howard's ears and continued as the thing turned from the end of his bed and slowly strode to the door. Howard watched it as the doorknob twisted by itself and the door swung open. He watched it still as the eyes took one last look at him and the shadow behind them showed a single hand raised toward the sky. The fingers twitched, curling in a sad, pathetic wave, and then the door shut, and the thing that was Bluto Hansen was gone. He heard footsteps glance down each step of his stairs and heard his back door open again. Howard stood and went to his window, hesitantly watching for the thing. He saw it, standing in his backyard with a cleaver in hand, eyes burning like coals. 
He saw the impressions of bare feet appear in the dried dirt of the backyard as it walked to the edge of his property. He saw it walk to the tree line, where the mouth of Winewick National Forest would begin, and then it disappeared in the shadow of the trees. That was Howard's story. My grandfather didn't know what to say, and even now, I'm sure he'd still struggle for a good reply. Frankly, Grandpa probably thought that he was absolutely, unequivocally, insane. But a good chunk of the story suggested that Howard's hands here weren't as clean as he made them out to be. How come he left the little Buchanan alone, Howard? If he was out there for revenge, I mean. Howard looked up to my pops and spoke with tears in his eyes. Mom told him not to. The boy didn't do anything. He didn't deserve any harm. And so, Grandpa left the room with his coat around his shoulders and booked Howard in for the moment. He arranged a nice little sleeping cot, and then he walked out to his car and started the engine. My grandfather drove his little patrol car up Anderson Boulevard, over Bellinchamp Heights, and slid slowly over the muddy ravines towards the west end of Winewick Limits. Howard's family had been here long, longer than most families in town. Despite their race, most folks paid them no mind that way. Not unless a yuppie were to commit to a house downtown for retirement, though usually we could ease any prejudice out of a fellow within a couple years of being around us. But being here that long, if anyone knew the exact count, meant that they'd inherited quite a bit in the years since the Civil War. Among the bits and bobs and heavy inheritance came the Myers Plantation home. It was out of place in this country, and though it's still standing now, it hasn't grown any more familiar since. But there Grandpa was, pulling up that tiny car to the great yellow pillars standing on the front porch. As he shut the door, he saw the big arms of the cottonwood trees reaching down for him, and creamy blue fog crawling through the thickets around the wood line. He told me that this part of town never felt quite right, especially at night. He said it felt like how he imagined Frankenstein's castle would feel in that old black and white movie. But he walked towards the big old doors just the same and stopped when he saw candlelight flickering from behind one of the pillars. An older woman, maybe 40 or 45 years old, stepped out into the moonlight. It was Bedelia Masterson, mother of Howard. She was in an elegant nightdress, which seemed to be perfectly new and likely bought from the Goldwaters in town. Her hair was bunched in a heap of curlers, and her eyes were tired and heavy. She looked at Pops like he was late, and seeing as she seemed to know that he was on his way, he figured that maybe he was. She didn't let my grandpa into the home. No amount of police business seemed to affect her determination. He would speak his business out there, or he would speak nothing at all. So, he explained that her son was in police custody, meaning he was obliged by law to tell her so. 
But Bedelia shook her head, knowing that that was something you said by phone call, not the kind of thing you do so early in the morning in person. He didn't kill anybody, officer. That's what he said. How about you, Miss Masterson? I didn't kill anybody either. Those kids killed themselves, that's all. Grandpa stepped back from the lady, deciding he might start over a bit. He told me a story, Miss Masterson. And did you believe it? Grandpa didn't reply, only using the moment to nervously tap his boot. Bedelia stepped closer to Pops, her hand holding the candle just under his chin, the red light casting weird shadows beneath both their faces. There are things everywhere, officer. Things that only act when you ask. They're not cheap. God, are they expensive. But they work. They work when nothing else does. Howard needed help, and I'm ashamed I had to ask and that it had to be so gruesome. But that's the way things go. I didn't give particulars. I didn't give methods of execution. All I did was ask for that boy to take back what he deserved, what Howard deserved. My grandpa was beginning to feel a strange itch in the back of his head, realizing how disturbingly convincing this was starting to sound. So you brought Bluto Hansen back from the dead, is that it, Miss Masterson? Some voodoo magic just pulling him around like a marionette? Oh, was that his name? Howard never told me his name. It's a shame. I would have liked to have met the boy. She looked down at the blades of river grass poking through the rocks in her front yard. I'm not from Louisiana, officer, nor am I anything other than American. I think it would be very foolish of you to misunderstand me now. I don't need voodoo. There's magic just as old and unfamiliar as that right here, right in this soil. Nothing funny about it. You have to know how to ask is all. As for the boy, he's not alive. That's over now. Now he's just something. A witchy engine running on its own. If you ask me where he is, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know where they go, but I don't think they leave. He's out here, and he'll be here a long, long time. What I didn't know then was the price for the request, and that's my fault. But if I did it for Howard, then... That's my duty to take on. But that thing is not Mr. Hansen. Just a watercolor painting of what it thinks he might have been like. I didn't know it would be like that. How could I? But now, I hate to think that maybe the boy is still in there someplace. Being made to watch the things he did. But I won't tell Howard. He'll never know, just as long as both of us keep our mouths shut. My grandpa was beginning to step away, though he didn't mean to. 
he didn't like the way the air began to feel around him. That's... Miss Masterson, that's nonsense. I can't believe that. I can't write that down in an actual report. You have to understand... Miss Masterson's shadow shone against the large pillar, dancing in the candlelight, and she whispered to my grandpa, No, officer, you must understand. Understand that Howard and I were in with little Juniper from seven to midnight last night, carving pumpkins and baking cookies. I have two rolls of film sitting on my kitchen table that will show you just that. Could you believe that? Could you write that down in your report? Grandpa could. But even without the photos, Grandpa might have believed her anyway. By then, he was so caught up in her eyes and how she spoke that he found himself accepting the story just as it was. Would he tell her that? Would he tell anyone that? Absolutely not. Not until his kids had had their own kids, and he was off the force and comfortably into retirement. Now it's as good as a ghost story, but the blood and the spookiness of it all still stood tall in his head. He was too old to care about the details and the names. Howard Masterson would not go to court. There'd already been stories about how the Buchanan siblings would take neighbors' pets out to the dump for target practice. Plenty of kids at the school had a vendetta against the siblings. In fact, from what I understand, Alexi Buchanan was the prime suspect in the case of the Buchanan murders. Grandpa doesn't answer when I ask him if he filed anything he'd found. The most I'd gotten out of him was that little Howard was booked that night for public intoxication, just being a good old boy. I suppose he's still out here somewhere, but familiar faces are a little harder to come by lately with the way the town has grown since then. He must be. His family wouldn't have moved, not from that old plantation house. Grandpa had a lot of stories to tell us when we were little. A couple of guys jumped in the old pool house a while back and just disappeared, and nearly five children just up and vanished from backyards all over town since he was promoted to sheriff. There are always stories to pull out of him, if he's feeling weird enough to tell them. But Bluto Hansen is by far the scariest to me. Me and my friends have been in and out of Ribbons County Forest more times than I can count, looking for any sign of those bright red eyes or that old wooden cleaver. We used to gather around and sit on some of the rubble out at the scrapyard, lighting candles and telling the story for that Halloween spirit. There'd be pictures we'd draw, or even Polaroids that the boys would bring to us, screaming their heads off that they'd seen him, they'd seen THE Winewick Boogeyman. That must have been... 93? 94? something like that. It wasn't even just us kids. Even grown adults would scream and holler about catching those eyes peeping in at them, usually after a hefty bar tab was built up the hours before, though. Far from the noise and the season of the witch, I'd caught myself going through any newspaper scrap I could find down at the library. 
76, 77, 78. Layers and layers of laminated newspaper ink that could go on for miles. I found the murders, sure. Even a court date or two was mentioned or updated in the years after. But not a single blip about poor old Bluto. He never got an obituary. It seemed silly then, but I don't think it is now. See, I could see the word of what happened getting away from Miss Masterson, Howard, or even Grandpa. People were whispering to each other in schoolyards or over picket fences, telling just what they heard about those kids and that Bluto fella. Maybe they'd even skipped town. I'm sure hearing that kind of gossip tore his parents apart. But a little whisper like that can light fires in these neighborhoods and these people. It can weigh a little heavier than the citizens write to a little block of text on a newspaper. Maybe one was never written, or maybe he never existed at all. But there is no obituary because no one wanted to give him one. In the end, the joke is on all of us because he made his own. Or rather, if Miss Masterson wasn't joking, the unnamed thing that stole his shadow did. Those kids took Bluto, and they got what they deserved. But Bluto didn't get to be remembered as the kid he was, not at all. Instead, he's just a monster in a closet. He's just a bad memory with big red eyes meant to scare stupid kids. But he's out in the woods, with plenty of places to hide. But maybe he's found a nice little hole to bury himself in, until someone does something that he wakes up to make right. You've been listening to The Obituary of Bluto Hansen by Samuel Geist. Well, folks, that concludes our program this evening. But don't worry, there's always more to come. In the meantime, I'd like to thank Olivia Steele and Paul J. McSorley again for guesting on this episode. Do yourself a favor and go check out Paul's Fear from the Heartland podcast. You'll be in for a treat. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales. There's still plenty of time for me to keep you shivering this winter. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, 
and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. As for me personally, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, username Viking Guitar, and also on Instagram as Viking Guitar Productions. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Nikki McSorley and Eric Peabody. Finalization by Craig Groshek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to let us know how we're doing and leave us a kind comment. Lastly, don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archives and ad-free downloads of all of your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, you can hear more of my work on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. However, I will be back next week 
with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.